You can't just wait for somebody else to think that your dreams or your goals are important. You've got to find a way to take your attention back, even if it's for an hour to an hour and a half a day. I think that can make a huge difference in what you're able to do and, and how good you feel about how you're spending your life. Hello there, I'm Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. We're hard at work producing season three of the Design Better podcast, where we'll talk with design leaders who are helping their teams achieve a more connected workflow, working more efficiently with their engineering and product partners. In the meantime, we've put together something a little special. You may remember that we interviewed Jake Knapp in season one of our podcast about his time at Google Ventures and the creation of his New York Times bestselling book, Sprint. Well, Jake and his co-author, John Zaratsky, have a new book called Make Time, and it couldn't come at a better, well, time. If you're constantly in busy mode and getting sucked into the email and social networks that Jake and John call infinity pools, this is the book for you. They outline tactics to make more time in your schedule for the things that are meaningful in your life, whether it's family, creative projects, or even just plain old work. So get ready to bulldoze your calendar, turn off your notifications, and listen to this interview with Jake Knapp, co-author of Make Time. Enjoy. We're big fans of Gusto, who make it easy to run payroll, set up healthcare and other benefits for your business. They've made setting up the HR infrastructure for Design Better a breeze. Gusto's also one of the best design SaaS tools out there. Design Better listeners get three months free once they run their first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. We'll tell you more about them later in the show. Jake Knapp, author of Make Time and, and Sprint. Welcome back to the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's uh, more punishment for you guys. So I really appreciate you taking a chance <laughs> on me a second time. So our, our long-term uh, listeners will remember Jake was in season one talking about design sprints. Um, and now he's back talking about uh, something related, about taking time for yourself, which feels a little bit like uh, making a, you know, doing a sprint for yourself personally. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But Jake, thanks for joining us. Well, it's really, it's exciting to talk to some folks who think about design all the time, about how we can design our time, because that's what the new book, Make Time, is all about. Um, so maybe we can start kind of at the, get the origin story, um, Jake, and, and you could tell us what inspired you and, and John Zeratsky. Am I pronouncing his last name right? Zeratsky? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. We could just refer to him as Jay-Z, like you do in the that's, book. <laughs> that's easy. So as long as people know which Jay-Z yes. we're talking about. Cool. Yeah, we'll set it up. Jay-Z, the co-author here. Uh, what, what inspired you guys to get back together and write Make Time? Well, John and I worked together on Sprint, and we worked together for five years at Google Ventures, really refining the design sprint process together with Braden and Daniel and Michael there. And a lot of the, you know, the it was obvious for us to work together on Sprint because we were doing that day in and day out. But actually, both of us have this real interest in in our own personal lives and making good use of time that goes back years and years before, before we met each other, to, you know, being really into getting things done and really into just our own personal sort of productivity. And now in make time, I would say productivity is kind of a dirty word to us. And we want to, you know, kind of change the way we, we look at at that idea of being effective or being purposeful in our work. But we've both been interested in it in a long time. And through the course of working together at GV, we realized that we had this shared interest. And so doing the design sprints and this environment where we could continually experiment with the process, you know, with our, our companies as sort of test subjects in, in each design sprint also became for us a way to, to start experimenting with these same ideas in our personal lives. So could we apply the ideas from a design sprint to what we were doing in our own day-to-day -day lives and vice versa? Could we take something that we learned about what worked well for us and then test it on these, you know, poor unwitting startups who were coming in to work <laughs> with us? That's awesome. So what, just to start diving into the tactics of the book, a big part of make time revolves around this concept of a highlight. And maybe you could just 
talk to us about what a highlight is, what makes for a good highlight, and some some ways that you might go about choosing one for a day. Yeah, there are a few big ideas from the design sprint that are also in make time, that inspired make time and vice versa, ideas that we started to see that, that we, we brought into the sprint. And I think the central one is the highlight. The central idea of make time is this, this idea of a highlight. So in a design sprint, every day of the week has a focal point. So on Monday, the team makes a map. Tuesday, sketch. Wednesday, decide. Friday, prototype. No, sorry, <laughs> Thursday, prototype. Friday, test. And what's cool about that, and that wasn't, you know, sort of the the initial recipe. We, over time, kind of figured out that if you had this one big focal point to the day, then at the end of the day, it was really energizing because you were, you were done with that thing. You could look back and you would know what you did. It wasn't just like, oh, we did a big, long checklist of activities or whatever. It was like, we did that big thing. Like, that's kind of the highlight of, of the day. And it it made everything feel better. And it allowed us to get the most important things done and, and to bring our attention to the most important things, just to sort of realize there's this one moment that really matters. And so what happened was John started to do this in his own day-to-day life. He started to, you know, when, when we weren't in a sprint, he would write down like, what's the one big thing that I want to do today? What's the thing that matters the most? And he realized that it it wasn't just a, a task. It couldn't be a small thing, like a, like a to-do list item. And it couldn't be like a whole big goal, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this, you know, this design spec or something, or I'm going to finish, you know, putting together this entire presentation today or whatever. It had to be something kind of almost in between, like something in between a task and a goal. And he kind of narrowed down on like 60 to sort of 60 to 90 minutes worth of work is usually about a good, a good highlight. And if you had that focal point, then you knew like that has to come before everything else. That's the thing that I'm most excited about working on today. And that's the thing that as we frame it in the book, at the end of the day, if you look back, you'll say like, that was the highlight of my day. That was the thing that brought me the most joy or the most satisfaction. So sometimes it might be a work project and that's kind of what, what I've been referring to, but sometimes a highlight might be, Hey, the highlight of my day is going to be, I'm going to make the time to hang out with my kids. I'm going to, the highlight's going to be dinner with friends. You know, it's going to be something that's actually just the the most joyous part of my day. Once you have that highlight, then everything else you do around creating time, protecting time in your calendar for that thing, building the energy for that thing, removing distractions for that thing, they stop being led by guilt and they start being led by what you want to do. You know, it's this instant reward. And that's, I think, also really powerful. That's a fascinating concept. Um, I like the idea of shifting uh, your your emotions throughout the day towards something positive. Uh, I, I'm curious, though, if we could backtrack. You said you didn't want this book to just be about productivity, and um, you know, seeing that as maybe uh, as as um, maybe a denigrating word to the process. Why why would it be bad to be productive? Um, and bring that productivity to people's lives. Yeah, this is a, a new concept for me. And in fact, it would be interesting to go back to Sprint and do like a, a word search and see if it says productive and how often it says productive. But my eyes have been open to the idea recently that productivity is is really usually reactive. It's, it's usually about like, how can I do the most stuff in and get the most things done. And all of this, when we, certainly when I talk about productivity, I, I, I know this feeling of being productive, which is a good feeling. It's like, I have a list of things to do and I'm checking those off, or I have a bunch of emails in my inbox and I'm really plowing through my emails. You know, or I'm having a bunch of meetings with people. I'm being really productive because I'm doing a lot of things. And it's, I think the word goes back to like the industrial revolution. Like it's like, you know, are we churning out a lot of widgets or is the factory productive? Which is, it can be a good feeling, but I think it's a very limiting hope for what we do as humans that we're, that we're productive. Cause you can very easily be productive 
and actually not be doing the work that matters the most. And so sort of, you know, the, the subtitle of Make Time is how to focus on what matters most every day. And that's, that's kind of what we're trying to get at. So rather than being productive, just getting a lot of things done, which may not, they may not be important things. They may not be the things that really matter. They may just be you in sort of a reactive state. What we hope to give the reader is a, a way to figure out what is, what's most purposeful. So I kind of want to shift the word from productive to purposeful. What's the one, like the thing that matters the most to you, the thing that often like maybe gets pushed off. Certainly for me, like the things that matter most often they're behind a wall of, of, you know, emails, or they're behind a wall of these little to-dos. Instead, to put that thing first and do that first, and then worry about being productive or catching up later. But but to put the thing that's really the, the most important to you, that becomes the focal point. You and John talk in the book about um, avoiding the busy trap of, you know, just falling into... Yeah being busy with lots of things. And, and that comes in different forms of being very thoughtful about how you organize your, your mobile device to you know reduce notifications and reducing what you call infinity pools of things you can just pull to refresh. There's always more information. Can you talk about that um, a bit? It's, it's, uh, I, I've got to say, it's, it's a slightly ironic uh, recommendation. Uh, two guys coming from Google uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, who have worked on products who, you know, could probably be classified. Yeah. These products could be classified as infinity pools. They could. Um, yeah, they should. You, I mean, they are. They how, are how did yeah. you arrive at, at like, I want to claim this device and this space uh, in my life, uh, you know, setting some boundaries? Yeah, well, I will say that the this is obviously a big topic right now, right? I mean, people have been talking about the devices are taking too much of our attention and... Apple and Google and Facebook are all rolling out features to try to help with, with this. And what's interesting is that they're all saying, what we're going to do is we're going to show you charts of how you use these, you know, these infinity, what we would call infinity pools, just how you use your phone and how much time you're spending on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, you know, web browsing or YouTube or Gmail or whatever. And then we're going to give you tools to set limits or to set sort of timers on those apps, which is admirable. It's like an admirable sort of like first step. And it, and it's, it's, it's a big deal because they're admitting that there's, that there's a, that there's a problem. And I think that those, all of those sort of set of features, they all are kind of about guilt, actually. Like, it's like you look at the chart and you like sort of like feel guilty. It's something we probably all already know that we use screens more than we want to. So we see that we're like, oh God. And then if you set the timer, then the timer comes up and it's like, hey, by the way, you should feel guilty right now because you used your thing more than you meant to, use this app more than you meant to. And then you have to like dismiss it and say, okay, remind me in 15 minutes or whatever, go into the settings and say, give me more time. And and it's and it's kind of too bad because I think a lot of this stuff is about guilt. And guilt, I'll tell you, guilt was the that was the root for me of realizing that there was a problem with the phone. Like I love technology. I love building like software has been a really fulfilling and exciting part of my life, trying to be a part of making these these products are new. I worked for a long time on Gmail. So Gmail is definitely an infinity pool. It's definitely a thing that that distracts us, you know, but it's also a tool. And we worked hard to try to make Gmail more respectful of people's time. I worked on the priority inbox feature and our, our metric, our success metric was, can we get our users to spend less time in their inbox because we help them focus on the most important email. But there's, there's a point in my life and it happened in 2012. I've realized that the being productive on the phone and thinking that I had kind of a handle on the infinity pools, the Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everything on my phone was, was something that like, even if I had a handle on it, even if I had turned down the volume on it, even if I had fewer notifications, or even if I sort of, you know, was limiting the amount of time I spent, I still had this relationship of feeling guilty when I used it. And I still had this relationship where the phone was like in my brain at all times. Like, even if I wasn't using it, it was like calling to me. It was like kind of pulling at my attention and it was dividing my attention and the need to kind of always be up to date on things to always be up to date on my inbox. I mean, the difference between only having email available on your computer and having it like on your phone as well is, is actually a huge deal. Like when it's on your phone, 
you could be up to date on your email inbox at any time, 24 hours a day, wherever you are, which is insane. But it didn't seem insane at first. It was just like, hey, the iPhone came out and now look, it's this works great. And of course, like I wanted it. So 2012, I had this moment, I'm with my kids, we're playing on the, in the living room and I realized like I'm on my phone because my son is like, dad, why are you, what are you, what are you looking at on your phone? And I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know how the phone got in my hand. Like I'm just sitting here at the end of the day playing with my kids and like all of a sudden I'm looking at my email, like what's going on? And I just decided because I felt guilty, I decided I'm just going to delete everything on here. Like, this is nuts. Like, I, I'm just going to delete all of these infinity pools. And as an experiment, I'll try it out. And what happened was that when the apps got off the phone, 100%, you know, and I was left with some pretty cool stuff. I mean, the iPhone without all those apps is still pretty cool. It's still got the camera. It's still got music, maps, all these, all these things that are actually pretty amazing. Without all that stuff, it like cleared up a huge amount of this stress and divided attention from my from my head. And I felt like I had more attention. And I started to see the moments with my family got better. I was able to start on some projects, like writing projects that I had never been able to do. And it was kind of cool because so much of the distraction in the world had it's like it was like a swarm of wasps into like a roadkill or something like it all went into the phone, you know, like everything's gone into the phone from 2007, whenever the what was it 2008 when the iPhone came out to 2012, like all, all that stuff had migrated there. And it, that was now like the primary place to to check all that stuff. You could still do it on the on the computer, but the the primary place was the phone by then. And so you took that all that stuff, you just rip it off the phone sudden like it was possible to be a lot more peaceful so it's it's kind of a counterintuitive thing that you just like turn back the clock you know you rip out those apps and the my world got a lot more peaceful anyway that's sorry that's super long-winded it's a topic that gets me excited actually because i think that right now the, the companies are starting to introduce these controls if if anyone's considering sort of using those controls screen time or or um you know the i don't know what android calls it but you should actually consider just deleting everything instead because that the difference between zero, like just dialing it down a little bit and actually going all the way to zero is huge. It's, it's really huge. And I really want people, and I hope people who read the book will consider doing that, just ripping it out. Let me, let me play devil's advocate real quick. Yeah, so please do. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I see the, the value like of me personally for the recommendations in here. And you know, it's it's about um, being conscious of our relationship to our work, but also just relationship to the world. And for our listeners who have direct reports, people on their team, they hear Jake and John recommending, like, read <laughs> yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. Might be thinking, I don't know, man, I, I need you to have Slack on so I could keep in touch with you. What's the What would you say to the bosses, the managers, who have these direct reports that they feel like they need to stay connected with. Well, yeah, I would I would push back on them and I think the pushback is like look the problem with email and Slack is that everything's the same level of importance. So every every message is an interruption. Every message is you see like kind of described in the abstract what's going on inside Slack or inside a work email inbox to someone and said this is a this is something you have to deal with in your job. I think people would be like, what are you talking about? So if I said like, I'm going to, part of your job is I'm going to give you a to-do list. So you're going to have a to-do list to work with. And it's going to have at any time, you know, you might have 50 new items put on that per day, maybe a hundred, maybe depending on the company, you might have a few hundred new, new to-do list items. But each to-do list item, you're not going to know, like there's no indication whether it's important or not. They're, they're all put on there by different people. And they don't actually say what you're supposed to do. In order to figure out what you're supposed to do with each to-do list item, you have to open it up and look through it. And those to-do list items can appear anytime, wherever you are, you can get a to-do list, including outside of working hours, a to-do list item can appear. I would be like, hell no, like I do not want to deal work from that to-do list. But that's what an email inbox is. It's a to-do list. Everyone, we all agree that it's a to-do list, but it's it's an insane person's to-do list because it's controlled by other people. Other people put items on there and they don't really say what it is. I have to like go through the message and like figure out what it is. And then I probably reread it later and reread it later again. It's nuts. So 
I think I would, what I say to bosses is like, hey, think about what you're doing to your employees with that insane to-do list. Can you think of a, like if, if what you're worried about is what if something comes up and I really need to contact Jake and it's, you know, it's, it's in the evening, like, God forbid, like I, I would hope that people can just shut off from work when they go home. That'd be great. But I know like maybe something comes up, it's an emergency the night before. Could you call me or text me instead? Because if you have like a different channel that is urgent, that is open, then sure, you know, and how many of those things can actually wait until the next day or the next time you see me? I mean, 99.9% of that stuff doesn't matter until the next day. And there's been studies on this stuff too. There's studies that show, we talk about one of these in the book that I thought was really interesting. They had a set of people and they, they had them, they allowed them to, you know, check your email as much as you want, as much as you, you know, as much as you'd like to. And another set of folks who they limited to three times per day. So just only check your email three times per day, which is still a lot, but just three times per day. And the folks who checked it three times per day were just as, you know, they, they were able to process just as much email and they actually did it in less time. So they did a better job processing their email and they reported being way less stressed, like as much less stressed as if they had done visualization exercises, which is kind of nuts. Like that's just limiting it to three times, which is not crazy. So yeah, the message to bosses I think is like, we have this expectation. It's just because it's the default. It's because the default is we're always on. Like all of these tools are always on. And the, the work culture just sort of without anybody thinking starts to set up like we're just doing email. But that stuff ends up getting in the way of the most important work. And that's something that we really saw in doing design sprints and working with all these companies. One of the biggest benefits people talk about from doing a design sprint is, my God, we were finally able to put away all of the the noise and focus on what mattered for a week. But if you could do that for a little bit of time every day, I think it's going to have a big effect on what any team can do. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. If you sit all day at work, like most of us do, and you've never tried a desk that can transition between sitting and standing, let me tell you, it's a complete game changer. I often struggle with hip pain that's caused by prolonged sitting, and a standing desk has helped me switch up my posture during the workday so I can avoid that pain and just feel better. Standing while I work, it helps me get those creative juices flowing, and it helps me focus and stay productive. I'm way more alert, which is helpful, especially after lunch. Each standing desk from Uplift Desk is built with solid materials. They have so many different beautiful woods to choose from. They're built to last, and you can customize it to match your space. Plus, you get free shipping, free returns, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Just go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5, and you'll get 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Check them out. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Support for Design Better comes from Gusto, who make running a small business easy. Get three months free at Gusto.com slash Design Better once you run your first payroll. I've run a few small businesses in my career, and each time I've set one up, the prospect of figuring out payroll and HR, it just freaks me out. But then I found Gusto. It's an incredible tool that Eli and I use to run our own payroll here at Design Better. 
Gusto made setup easy, and they even helped us sort out tax registrations with multiple states. Gusto is a brilliant tool. It's well-designed, and it's incredibly usable. Design Better listeners can get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash design better. Can't recommend it enough. That's great. So I, I have not yet been able to uh, fully take off Slack because Aaron won't let me take it off my phone. <laughs> <laughs> but I have been able to start taking and putting turning off notifications. And and um, the thing that I, I really see both through, through teaching and running workshops, and it's it resonates in the book a lot too, is this you know, this idea that a phone is really an anti-mindfulness device in a lot of ways. You know, it's a it's going to take you out of the moment. It's going to take you away from the people that are in front of you that you're interacting with, especially if it's something in person. And so I really like the sections of the book where you're highlighting these tools like um, Headspace or during the reflect section when you're you know expressing gratitude. Maybe could you talk a little bit more about how mindfulness or, or meditation practice plays into into the strategies that you lay out here in the book well i i am someone who has gotten a lot out of meditation using the headspace app i mean that's i wasn't i'm not able to do it really on my own i I have i do try from time to time i'll like sit you know sort of sit there and and try to do it and i i have i have very poor self-control which i think is part of what maybe is the the real, you asked at the beginning, what's like, where does the book come from? Maybe the real backstory is I'm somebody who loves technology and, you know, wants to do a lot of things and wants to be a good dad and all these things. But I do have like really, I'm, my attention jumps around. And so I'm not, I'm not sitting here, you know, like in the lotus position while we're talking. Like it's just, it's very, it's very difficult for me to, to meditate. And Headspace made it possible, you know, for me to kind of like, like have a way that I could just do it. Like just, okay, I'll just follow, I'm just going to push play on this app. It's an example of how, you know, smartphones and the technology we have today are so powerful. There are things that would not, I would never have gotten into meditation, never been able to do it before Headspace. So there are, there are all these things that it, that these devices deliver that are actually really quite wonderful. But, but even still, even knowing as much as I do that if I spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes doing headspace or doing a meditation, I'm going to feel much more focused. I'm going to be more effective or whatever word we wanted to use productive or effective or purposeful afterwards, but I'm going to be more focused afterwards for sure. And I've, I've done this. I've like kind of checked myself and said, like, I don't think I should do headspace. I'm going to write it down. I'll experiment with it. Every time it turns out I do better work afterwards, but it's very counterintuitive. The idea that I'm going to take, time away from my work or whatever it is that I'm doing just to just to be quiet and silent that that's going to help me out is really counterintuitive seems like I should just get a few few more things done in those 10 minutes and so I I would say to people who are who are thinking about like you know is make time for me is it something I should check out meditation is something that we talk about as one of the tactics that can help but it's it's not crucial that you do it. It's a worthy experiment. And I think that I found through experimenting and kind of like noticing what it does for me that it's worth doing. And I try to do it on most days when I can, but I also know how hard it is. And I know what a hard sell it is to imagine like trying to meditate. And there's a whole, you know, there's like whole folks who like they're writing books just about trying to get us over the hump of meditating, like the 10% happier thing, right? It's like a whole like podcast series. It's just about like getting us over the hump of meditating because it's really, really hard. So I'm not going to try to say, look, like that's in the package too. You got to do it. I don't do it every day. I don't think John does it at all. I don't know. You guys should check with him. I might be, I might be throwing him under the bus, but I don't think he does it at all. But part of it is just the idea of meditation is like, do what you're doing hundred percent. Like, you know, when you're, when you're meditating, you're just like, okay, I'm just going to try to like watch my thoughts. And then you start to notice that your brain's automatically generating thoughts all the time. And one of the things that I took away from doing a, a bunch of that was just like, man, a lot of the time my attention is divided. I'm not doing something hundred percent. And so this plays back into the idea of the highlight and saying, there's one thing I want to do today, hundred percent when I'm, when during that hour or whatever, when I'm working on that thing, I want to be a hundred percent focused on it. So how do I get there? Well, I've got to shut off the things that distract me. I may have to make those impossible to access. I may have to turn off the internet. I may have to delete the apps on my phone, whatever. But once I do that, once I put a little bit of space, if there's something I want to do, 
then I can get into what we call laser mode. Like then I can be a hundred percent focused. And so for me, that's the essence of meditation and make time is actually not that you have to meditate, but that if you are able to pick a focal point and then you're able to turn down distractions and you have enough energy, you have enough physical and mental energy, this just sort of appears, this mode where you're locked in just appears. And it is kind of that essence of, of meditation. And that's, uh, you know, to go back to the topic of, of managing teams and what we want for our employees, we want this connection to one another, but we also like lasering is a very valuable thing because if someone can invest their attention on a task and they can, you know, if that's a highlight or maybe it's something else, um, they can, um, achieve that have that sense of, of, you know, I, I did something meaningful. I did some important work, yeah. checked it off the list. I mean, ultimately that's going to help reduce churn that what's most frustrating at when I manage teams is, you know, seeing people have to task switch so much. They're all over the place. They're less productive. Work yes, seems yeah. less satisfying. Yeah. They just feel scattered. Yeah. Spent. I think that's maybe back to that point about what do you say to, to a boss about this? It's, it's actually a value proposition to the boss that if you can help your teams, help the, the folks who work for you, work with you, to have that space and to have more agency in how they spend their focus at work. Because a lot of the tools like email and Slack and even just the meetings that we go to take agency away from us. They, they take our ability to dictate what ought to happen away from us. And we're reacting, we're doing jobs for other people. And it's funny because actually there's so much email, there's so many Slack messages, there's so many calendar appointments that we're, we're circularly doing each other's work. Like a lot of times we're not even actually doing hardly anything productive because we're just reacting to everything that's going on. If you can create space and you don't have to give up you don't have to give up messaging systems 100%. No, that would be crazy. You don't have to give up having meetings. Uh, you know, that'd, that'd probably be crazy. But you can create space every day for the team to have focus time where the team decides what they're doing, where emails may be not allowed and messages are not allowed, but you just are focusing on a thing that's important to you. And I think if you're managing people, that could be scary depending on what the relationship is with the employees. If you don't trust that your employees will use that time well, it's better to, you know, kind of bombard them with with tasks. Chances but, are you've got other problems to solve then. Then you have other problems. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that what can happen when that time starts, when people are able to focus is is probably the reward for that for the for the team is is probably much, much greater. And you know, I I think if I were if I were thinking about hiring like Jake, you know, um, since I started doing this, this practice, Jake over the last six years versus hiring Jake before, like distracted Jake, or I think of it as like bizarro Jake, who's who is constantly who I used to have a reputation for being like so fast on email, right? So I was like a hundred percent on my email. I was so productive on my email. If you give me a, ask me to do something, I would do it like right away. I was really good about that stuff. And I had to like give that up, you know? And I used to be I lost friends because on, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I just kind of drifted off of it. And I'm not, I, you can't do Instagram if it's not on your phone. So there's people I lost touch with. If you ask those people, they probably say, oh, Jake's a loser. He's a, he's a jerk. I lost stuff. But if I was thinking about hiring or working with Jake, you know, today versus bizarro Jake, who's still distracted by that stuff, Jake today is more unpredictable. If I like, I, I'm going to set my own agenda about what I do, but the work I do is so much better. And it's, it's, it's why John and I were able to write books or why we were able to do the design sprint, which people weren't really asking for, you know, but kind of create space to do that. It's because we started to set our own agenda. And that's why I think the promise of working in this way is being able to set your own agenda. And sometimes really cool things will come from that. Can we, can we talk about calendaring? Because that's yeah. uh, something that's sort of touched on there, but uh, it is the bane of most people. Yeah. It's that, uh, you know, people can put time on your calendar. <laughs> yeah, which is so crazy. People can put time, they can just take, they can walk over to your calendar and just pluck it up like a thief. Yeah, and it's your life. It's like a little piece of your life and they're just it like, It is a piece I'll of your life. It it's quite like a literally a piece of your life. Tell us about your calendaring strategy and, and how might we make time to be more focused to get that laser time? Yeah, well, I my calendaring strategy, the, 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 
the best thing I ever did for my calendar was to quit my job and be self-employed because <laughs> now I have a 100% control over my calendar. I still struggle with it sometimes. I still have to remind myself to say no to things and to batch things up. But that's very extreme. And that that is not, it is not always helpful, I think, to hear that like, oh yeah, sure, just don't, you know, just just quit. That's that's the best thing for your calendar. Um, but what I what I used to do and what we I still actually use this strategy. John and I kind of consciously started doing this at well at Google Ventures. And we we started to, as a team, our design team started started doing this because we found that with sprints, we would have sprint weeks, you know, and and that was that's one strategy actually right there. Blocking off a big chunk of time where you're just focused on one thing has, even if you just do that, you don't even have to run the design sprint process. Even if you just block off a, a week of time where the team is focused on one thing, like good things will happen. The design sprint process helps, but good things will happen from there. But then we started to realize, well, actually we should start designing our non-sprint weeks too. And we, we, you know, we realized that it would be much more effective if we batched our meetings onto one or two days and then use the balance of the work week. So the other three or four days to do big projects and not have meetings at all on those days. And so we talk about in the book, Make Time, about this idea of a time crater. And the idea of the time crater is like, there's something on your calendar. It, it isn't just, let's say I have a 30 minute meeting. Uh, that 30 minute meeting isn't just 30 minutes because there's a cost before that. And anyone who's read the maker time, manager time post, um, which is a few years old now, it's an excellent post and talks about the, the stress that comes up. If you're trying to make something, if you're trying to do individual work and you have that meeting coming up and then, you know, it's like in 45 minutes, you're like, I can't really get into what I'm doing now. And so you kind of just like do light work or dink around and kind of waste time until the meeting happens. And then, you know, after the meetings, I, I might also have like a little bit of a crater afterwards because I have to th- remind myself what I was doing. And so any meeting in the day kind of can, it's like a, you know, it's like putting a rock through a pane of glass. Like it's not just going to put a perfect hole in there. It's going to shatter a bit. So we tried to leave fully blank days on the calendar whenever we could. It's not always possible, but by default, we would block off the calendars every week. These you know, three days are full already with nothing. So there's a meeting all day. It's just, we're doing focused work. And then these other two days are blocked off and they're going to be when we try to pack in every single meeting, just back to back to back. So I can just get into meeting mode and just be in a batch of doing that. And I think that doing either that or, you know, blocking every morning, we're going to have time when we don't do email. Another thing that I've done is to, I use this app called Freedom where you can like create schedules for, that block wet certain websites. And so I have a, I block email until uh, 10 a.m. every day. And in fact, I'm going to have to up it a little bit further as I go into like a starting to work on a new book in a couple months here um, to put a, push it a little bit further into the day. Because if you don't do email, if I'm not reacting in the morning, then I'm, I'm being proactive. I'm going to do something that's important. So that's another way you can design your calendar. And a team can say, we're going to block off our mornings. We're not doing interruptive work in the mornings. We're only doing focused work. I think that's another really effective way. But the calendar can be a tool to help you focus. It's just that by default, if we don't take control of it, it's going to be a tool to push us around. I will say, Jake, that that's one of the techniques I've really taken to heart from the book. And I start off every week by really deliberately, um, you know, there's obviously recurring meetings that you can't yeah. do much about, but but designing around those times really blocks to do to do thoughtful work has been super helpful. And then also scheduling things around, you know, just making sure I'm out exercising, that kind of thing, and being deliberate about that. So I really, really uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that comes to mind, too, is um, I don't know if you've read Designing Your Life, uh, Bill Burnett and Dave yeah, Evans. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really great compliments in that book, in your book. And um, I'm curious if you thought about that at all or, or the ways that, that they at least express, like, you know, this kind of idea of, like, balancing out your week with the kind of energy giving and energy draining things reminded me a lot of, of your kind of like energized tactics too. So yeah, curious about that. Well, the idea of energy, it's so important and we kind of, it's kind of the last thing that we talk about in the book and it's, you know, it's, I'm glad that it's not the first thing we started talking about in the podcast because a lot of these themes are things that are around that we've, you know, 
when we say it, we're not saying things that are new. People know that exercise is good for them. People know that sleep is important. People know these things. It, it's it's easy to to know them, and it's very hard to actually do those things. And so we actually, I mean, for if anybody's a, a design nerd listening to this, seems possible. Um, we the first version of the book started with energize. That was the first thing we started talking about because it's it's like the fundamental thing. You first thing in the morning, like if you can build energy from the start of the day, the way we thought of it in the form of a day. It all flows from your your physical and mental energy. We want to talk about that first, but we realized as we as you know, sometimes an idea in the abstract sounds good, and then when you see it concrete, when you see the prototype, you start to second guess. So when we started to see how the book read with that in the beginning, we thought, man, we're not really we're not experts on physical fitness or mental you know uh, meditation or anything like we shouldn't we shouldn't lead with this we should lead with the place where our our expertise is more interesting and that's in you know how you design your time and how you get things sort of done that are important to you and how you manage technological distractions and for better or for worse maybe because we're hypocrites and worked in the tech field we do know a lot about how to do that stuff the energized stuff is is really important, and I think that what is unique about our take on energize is that rather than focusing on sort of the long term benefits, or and again, it's this idea of we're not going to tell you you should do something or you should feel guilty if you're not doing this or that. We're not going to tell you like you should exercise every day because you want to have a healthy heart, like. 30 years from now, or you should exercise every day so that, you know, you're building muscle mass and you're like looking great and, you know, like whatever, like that's not the point. Actually, all the point of the things we're going to talk about in terms of what you eat and the way you treat your body and your mind for energizing are totally, you're going to get the reward right now today because you'll have more energy for your highlight. Your highlight is something you want to do. And so if you want to be at your, the top of your, your game in terms of focus, whether it's at work or at home and a hobby, whatever, exercising, eating well, resting well, spending time face-to-face with people you care about, all those things are just geared towards something you're going to get today. You're going to get more energy today. You're going to feel better today. You'll get more out of that thing that's then going to be the highlight of your day. And so in all cases, we want people to feel excited about doing those things because of the immediate reward. And so I I really hope, I mean, all that stuff is just so hard to do. Like anytime we ask somebody to change behaviors or change the way they think about their life, as in the case of designing your life, it's so hard to do. And so I think it's important to have lots of different voices talking about maybe different angles on some of these same ideas, because hopefully for some folks, the way we talk about it or the way they talked about it or the way someone else talks about it will really resonate. And they'll say, oh yeah, actually that, that works for me. I'm going to, I'm going to try this and, uh, and, and they're good things. I love that this book, um, you know, I could read this and I could use some of these tactics to just optimize my life and be more productive, be more energized as you're describing, but it seems like there's a, a deeper undercurrent, um, to this, this a dark, idea. It's a dark undercurrent. It's not dark. It's actually, <laughs> it's a really bright, uplifting undercurrent about living an examined life, um, about paying attention to this one commodity that we all have that is finite, which is our yeah. life's energy. Yeah. And how will we spend that? How will we spend that in a way that's satisfying? How will we spend that in a way that's meaningful, that makes the most contribution? to the organization that we serve, to the community we serve, to the the people in our lives that we serve, uh, to ourselves who we serve as well. And I wonder if you could just talk about your philosophy and John's philosophy. Uh, for listeners who don't know, Jake and John were, were at Google Ventures for a long time, um, not at the same time, but pretty close in time frame uh, left. And I know that John and his wife bought a boat uh, they sailed down the uh, the coast, uh, Pacific coast, down yeah. to Mexico. And so there's this undercurrent, this, this backstory that's not in the book about personal freedom. How does that tie into this, uh, the, the ideas in this book? And what do you want your readers to, to know about that, that concept? Well, it's a tremendously important topic to me, and it is the unwritten theme of the book. And I'm so encouraged that 
that you see it there and that you want to talk about it. Because it's it's not we don't talk about it overtly a lot. Um, and I think it's a I think we have to be careful in talking about it because John and I have both been very lucky in our careers and being in the right place at the right time in many instances. And and we don't want to tell people like, oh, if you just do what we did, you know, you have it all figured out. And that's not the case. But I do think also at the same time, we because we were lucky to be in these circumstances and to be able to to experiment with our work and to be able to see what happened when you start to break the rules or break the defaults of the way work goes, that um, we do have something maybe interesting to to share. And I won't speak for John on philosophy of life because that's personal. That's a personal thing, and you know, should get his take himself. I'll, but I'll tell you about mine. I I really care about time and about paying attention to it. And I don't know, I have maybe many triggers in my life that started me thinking about this. I can't remember how much we talked about this in a previous episode, but at the risk of being redundant, I I almost got killed playing basketball when I was in high school. I ruptured my spleen. I lived on a little island. I had to be helicoptered off and have my spleen removed. And I had almost bled to death by the time that they, um, that they uh, did surgery. And so having a near death experience at age 16 was like, definitely like from that moment on, I had a different idea about how tenuous life was. And, uh, my, my father had, uh, Alzheimer's. And so in my, um, in my thirties, I kind of saw that happen and he passed away a couple of years ago that more recently was a, a very, uh, had a big effect on the way I thought about time. And the way I thought about the time that I have left and and what may be ahead of me. And I'm a father and I've been a father for 15 years. I have two sons and having children is another thing I think for anyone will will have a a big effect on their, you know, outlook on, on life and what a day means and what an hour means and what it means when you miss that time with your children or what it means when there's a moment and you aren't able to pay attention to it as much as you, you wish you could. So the, all of those things aren't really unique to me. They're things that happen to all kinds of people. I think lots of folks think about this stuff a lot. And I was lucky enough to start to get into positions at work where I saw ways to start to experiment with the way we did our work and the way we spent our time. And what I saw was that the more, I mean, if you just boiled it all down, the more I could recognize what the defaults were, what were the cultural norms are the things that had just kind of appeared or congealed in the workplace culture or in the technology culture and my expectations of how I use my device or how I spend my day. If I could recognize those defaults and see them for what they were, something that was optional maybe, something that I could challenge or break, something that I could try to push back against or redesign, then space started to open up. And once there's a little space and I could start to exert what I wanted to see happen, I could start to exert more of my own attention or focus on things. Then I started to have more freedom. I started to have more freedom at work and the kinds of projects I did and the, the role that I could have in those projects. And I started to have more freedom really in my life in general, because when your attention is your own, then you're free. When you can focus your attention on what you want to focus it on, then you're free. I mean, that's really, I've talked for a long time. I've always said, you know, all we have in our life is time. And it's true, but really it's attention because you can waste a lot of time. You can have a lot of time. And if you aren't able to pay attention to what you want to during that time, it's, it's as if it's, it's wasted. So, so if I can focus my attention, then I'm free. And I think that's the themes in the book are really about making small changes to start to have more ownership and agency over one's own attention. And I think that once that starts to happen, then a lot of those, the walls that, surround us that are made up of defaults, when those start to break or when you start to see how to change those, who knows what's going to happen? For John and I, as we started to have more agency in how we focused our attention, John focused more and more on sailing, on learning how to maintain a sailboat and on spending more time practicing his sailing and, and his wife practicing as well so that they were able to go on long extended trips. And where it led them was taking these long-term or they're living on the sailboat trips and, and really, um, traveling, yeah, traveling down, you know, along the, along the coast and months at a time. And for they must me, have passed Eli on the way <laughs> Probably. Yeah. he's on the coast. And, um, and for me, it was, it was about, you know, a lot of it was about writing and that the more that I 
was able to control where I put my attention. I realized, gosh, this is something I've wanted to do since I was a kid, but I always thought I have to put it off for later. Well, maybe I could start now. And I don't know where it will take people who read the book, but I hope it will take them somewhere. I, I have a friend, a uh, well-known designer named James Victoria, who says uh, freedom is something you take. <laughs> yeah. You oh, don't wait good. for someone to drop it off on your doorstep. And uh, it's so true. I mean, you just take it. You take it. You don't wait for someone to give it to you. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's another one of those things where it's like you, you almost hate to talk about the topic because so many folks are in situations where they, they can't take it for one reason or another. You know, there's a, there are a lot of re- things that prevent us in society where in the, you know, there, there are things even in the United States where the three of us are and we're, you know, we're lucky to be, we're white guys in tech. Like a lot of things are the, you know, the, the wind at our back. Yeah. Um, and so it's easier for us to say that, but it's still, it's, it's an important message for, for people to remember who are, um, who have the opportunity to take a bit of that freedom back, because it is something that I only now realize looking back on my career, like that things started to really change when I could take even a little bit more of, of freedom, take a little bit more of initiative and start to do things that I thought were important and make the time for them because you can't just wait for somebody else to think that your dreams or your goals are important. You've got to find a way to take your attention back. Even if it's for an hour to an hour and a half a day, I think that can make a huge difference in what you're able to do and, and how good you feel about how you're spending your life. That's great, Jake. And since so much of this is about time and we're at time, I just want to <laughs> <laughs> I want to clear with you before asking you one really simple question to kind of end things off, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, first, just tying into what you just said, I think I think the book is actually a really great gift, for even for folks who don't necessarily have the types of opportunities we might have in our careers, because it really causes you to examine all the defaults in your life and see spaces that you might just not realize you had and be able to design around those uh, opportunities. So I think that's, that's really a gift. Um, last question I was going to ask to wrap things up. Um, what's the best place for people to find the book? Oh yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful question and it's, it's perfect timing because the, the book is out. You can go to maketimebook.com and you can find all the information you might want about it. We have some tools there and a bonus pack, and you can look inside the book if you aren't convinced yet by listening to us talk about it for an hour. But you can also find it everywhere where you would expect to find a book. So you can find it online at Amazon and other retailers. You can find it in Audible. It's on the Kindle. Um, the audiobook was me and John recording it. So if you didn't get enough of my voice, you can <laughs> hear, hear a few more hours of it. And yeah, I really do hope that people will um, will check it out and, and see what you think and uh, and let us know. Thanks for making time to talk to us. Absolutely, absolutely, my pleasure. And I'm so grateful to you guys for for taking the time out of your schedule to do a, a special episode. Absolutely, our pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the DesignBetter.co podcast. But if you're hungry for more high quality design education, head over to designbetter.co, where you can find videos, eBooks, and articles on design and what it can do for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to help other folks find us and to spread the word on what design can do for them. Thanks for listening.